0: Good morning, friends. I think it's interesting at a seminary, a graduate school where we are so constantly forward facing to look back a little bit into our members history. For example, I I think it's interesting to find out what everybody's first job was sometimes. You know, people headed for master's degrees and PhDs and all the other E's all started somewhere They all had a beginning working somewhere. I mean, who among us worked in retail or childcare? Who in the great hallowed halls of this school started in waste removal or pizza delivery? How many lips that now speak Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic once echoed the words, would you like fries with that? I'd encourage you to ask that question today of someone. What was your first job? Where did you begin? My first job was at the time uh, what was titled a health aid. Now we would call it a medical assistant. I worked in a doctor's office where we primarily saw patients who were unable to pay for medical care. And one of my main jobs, as untrained as I was, was to take the patient's charts to the waiting room and to call them back and welcome them into the intake room to take their height, weight, blood pressure, temperature, and then to walk them through a series of questions uh, that was known in medical terms as the anamnesis or the medical history. Um, You've been through this list of questions so many times, you could probably repeat it for me, couldn't you? What brings you in today? How are you feeling? Where does it hurt? How long have you felt this way? And an anamnesis includes not just the immediate symptoms, but also the medical history the person has, the family history going back before they were born, their allergies, questions about their alcohol and drug usage, and sexual partners. And the result is something that gets written down into a medical chart, and it sounds something like this. The patient is a 48-year-old Hispanic male with a two-month history of rheumatoid arthritis and a strong family history of autoimmune diseases presenting after an episode of lightheadedness and muscle weakness. Patient began experiencing symptoms four months ago. At that time, he experienced fatigue and joint pain in the knees and hands, and he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. He was given a short course of corticosteroids to alleviate his, syst- his symptoms, and he was also put on the medicine methotrexate at the time, however, taken off later because of side effects. For the past two months, the patient has been experiencing worsening symptoms. He has been experiencing progressively worsening headaches accompanied by lightheadedness, light and sound sensitivity, nausea, vomiting. He reports no loss of consciousness associated with the headaches. No convulsion, no change of vision, no loss of continence. When the headaches began two months ago, they would last about half the day or occur approximately once per week. But then they increased in frequency and duration over the last month until they have become almost a daily occurrence and lasted most of the day. He is unable to eat, sleep, or work. Concurrently, the patient is experiencing worsening joint pain in the knees and hands, and the pain is constant, accompanied by swollen and hot joints and not alleviated by medication. Also, in the last two months, he's experienced dry mouth that makes swallowing food difficult and a burning sensation of his eyes. I'll stop there, even though that is the first paragraph of many in this anamnesis. And every anamnesis reads almost like a puzzle. Even as you read it, you're trying to figure out what's wrong, what's happening, how do we fix it? It reads like a list of symptoms in need of fixing. But it's also true that it's a person, and we can't forget that, that the symptoms described are not disembodied but belong to a living soul whose experience is so real, you can read it here, can't you? The lack of ability to work or eat or sleep, what must that be like to a living person? How must their life have changed? What words aren't written here that describe this living person's experience? Can you imagine anything more personal than the things that happen to your body? Can you imagine anything more personal than having to describe them out loud to a complete stranger who writes them down in front of you? Anamnesis, the description of this, is a Greek word. It means a calling to mind, to cause to remember, a remembrance. Uh, It's basically a remembrance of the body, recalling that person's experience in their own body, but also giving a medical history so far back, it goes back into their family before their memory begins. And although uh, when I had the job of collecting an anamnesis from each patient, I was not yet in ministry, and my role was a very secular one, let me tell you that hearing the story of the body is holy work. Listening to each person describe their aches, their pains, their hurt, their healing, their history, things that they did right or wrong, things they had no control over, it feels almost like being a priest sitting in confession. You want to prescribe something, absolution, some way of fixing it, but that wasn't my job. Every story of healing also contains stories of pain. Every story of disease has within it the seeds of healing somewhere if you just look closely enough. And I would like to think that the sharing of that story, just telling the story of your body to someone else and having them listen and affirm your experience and write it down as truth. I'd like to believe that that's healing work, to be the one who hears the story of the body, who records it so that something can be done. Now, I'm old enough that in the office where I worked, we had paper charts. (laughs) We printed things out and stored them in a packet called a chart. And when a patient had been with us long enough for as many visits, we filled up an entire chart that manila folder could hold no more. And we had to open for that patient a second chart and fill that one as well. And sometimes people had such experience of chronic illness that they needed to return again and again. They came back to us so frequently that on our shelf were multiple charts just for one patient. Some stories go way back. Now imagine my surprise when uh, years later, God sort of brought me to a fork in the road and encouraged me to take the one that led towards ministry. And so I came here and sat in a classroom right here at Asbury Seminary, uh, where a professor was teaching on the sacrament of Holy Communion in worship. And they listed on, uh, at the time, the overhead, yes. Uh, (laughs) Some professors still have them, you know they do. Um, On the overhead, a list of the technical words that describe the parts of the Eucharist. And this list came up before us, invitation, confession, absolution, sursum corda, sanctus, anamnesis, mysterion, Epiclesis, the Lord's Prayer, the fraction, the distribution, the prayer, the benediction. And I loved those words. They were beautiful. I mean, those are almost like Harry Potter words, are they not? <laughs> You're Like, what, what mystery is happening in these words? I had been through the sacrament of communion most of my life and never heard the words that describe the portions of it. It brought out such beauty and mystery, but um, there was one word in particular that caught my attention. Do you see it? Anamnesis. What was a medical word doing in the middle of communion? Uh, I will just refer you, if you feel drawn to these words and learning more about them, to sign up for Dr. Power's worship classes where you can learn, too. (laughs) An anamnesis is a remembrance, a reenactment, or a participation in the history of the body. Isn't that crazy? The same word that I had seen and written on medical charts was a word that we approach at this table? I mean, it almost makes me want to pause for a moment and send a quick message to my dad who told me I was wasting my undergrad degree in pre-medical biology by coming to seminary. (laughs) That I was making a mistake by leaving a potential career in medicine and instead going into ministry when it turns out they're basically the same thing. (laughs) Just a little different earning potential, that's all. (laughs) You laugh because it hurts. (laughs) The portion of the communion liturgy that recounts the history of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Christ is called the anamnesis. Just like an anamnesis in a medical chart follows the journey of a body, this portion of communion is a holy history where we hear the holy words of the story of the church, the history of the ways that Christ came to live and die and rise again for us, the journey of a body, a real body. It's a history of love. And the passage that Lauren read for us today, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, makes a shocking claim that Christ calls the church... His body, you and me, members of his body. And there are shocking metaphors used in scripture to draw us in and make sense of these relationships we don't understand. Um, Those that show the intimate nature of how God relates father, son, bride. But I cannot imagine a more intimate way of addressing something than to call it your own body. I mean, nothing is more personal to us, more intimate, more natural, but also more mysterious. The things we know about ourselves that no one else knows, that's what he named us, his body. Nothing is closer to our personal experience. Our bodies, they, they move at our very impulse of. A flourish of genius by a virtuoso pianist. Something in the brain, all those nerves connecting to make beautiful music come out. Or the reflex of being tapped on the knee and just a knee-jerk literal reaction. Our bodies translate our thoughts to the outside world. Our bodies provide our contact with the world through our senses. They bring us the bright taste of a summer strawberry the weight of a warm blanket, the pain of hitting your little toe on that corner of the couch again. Our bodies are both the way we receive input from the world around us and the way we express output. Without them, we make no sense and we have no senses. And here is Christ saying to us, That is how closely I relate to you. You're my body. You are the way I long to physically and outwardly express my thoughts, my will, my impulses to the world. You're the way I'll be known. You're the way through which I receive from the world joy and pleasure. The greatest loves of this world I created, I I feel them through you, my body encountering the joys of the world I made. When I long to touch the world, I long to touch it through you. When I pour out resources to the world, I do it through you. Your experience of heartbreak at the broken nature of this world is actually my heart breaking in you. When you feel the joy of celebration at the good world that I have made, I experience and express that feeling of joy of the world through you, my body. Back to that office storeroom full of medical charts. I mentioned that some patients had such a long history that their information took up chart after chart after chart, just just to see one person's history become that long, you knew, you knew that there was so much to their story. Imagine how thick a chart would be for a 100-year-old patient that had visited all the time in their life. Imagine how thick the chart would be of a patient if they were a millennium old, two millennia old. Just imagine the anamnesis. The patient is a 2,000-year-old body who presents with both acute pain and rampant disease, but also a remarkable capacity for healing and resilience. She has been through a multitude of cancers, treatments, seeming deaths, so many resurrections. As each new generation of cells regenerates, her body finds new means of expression. And because her body is so diverse, It's difficult to find ways to describe her major characteristics. How do you describe her height, her weight, her age, her temperature of hot or cold or lukewarm, her heartbeat racing or slowed to a flat line. The results are so mixed they're indeterminate. Does she go by the name Mount Zion Methodist just up the road on the way to Harrodsburg? a small body singing ancient hymns and using an outhouse because the money it would cost to make internal plumbing possible, they just want to send that to missions? Or does she call herself Southland Christian Church, remarkably in the other direction on the same road, with Thousands and thousands of cells singing to electric guitar and drums, and a cell group for every demographic imaginable, multiplying mission and outreach as fast as anyone can think of them. Is she the church in Nigeria lifting praises? The church in South Korea getting up to pray at dawn. The church on the Pacific Islands dancing in praise. The church in South America praying in a language only God recognizes. Is she the one gathered under the trees in tents, in cathedrals, in auditoriums, in schools, and homes? Is she persecuted or free? Is she in schism or in unity? Is she contemporary or traditional? And contemporary to what decade and what culture? (laughs) And traditional to whose tradition? In what era? It is hard to say what should go into her chart under the physical characteristics. One of the problems is she's so personal to all of us that if I say the word church, Something comes to your mind that is so intimate, so personal. Some of our feelings of those things are positive. Others are pockmarked with trauma. All of us have experiences, both good and bad, that go into our own chart of the church. My picture starts with a red brick church on the south side of Houston, where starting at four years old, I stared at stained glass windows in awe. Still, when I go back to that place, the nativity window takes my breath away. My parents divorced when I was very young, under a year old, and so for much of my childhood, it was just my mom and I in our little household trying to make it work, and part of that, to her credit, was to get us to that red brick church as often as we could go. Now, my mom sang in the choir, and because the choir sat up front in a choir loft, I, who was too old for the baby nursery, sat alone in the congregation starting at age four. Can you imagine leaving a four-year-old alone? Throughout church. But the secret was I never sat alone. I sat with a different family each week, nestling myself between siblings and parents, cuddling up to someone else's grandparents and aunts. I fell asleep during lots of sermons, feeling very much at home and a part of a family. And I do think it is God's great sense of humor to cause me to be a preacher because I slept through so many sermons. (laughs) Um, I never felt alone in that place, and I never was. I was not parented by a single parent, but by hundreds of parents. And trust me, they did not hesitate to parent me when I needed it. (laughs) Later on, being called to ministry, I began work working for churches as a youth minister and then a pastor and my eyes were a little more open to the wounds and scars that the body bore and I remember the very first church I was on the staff of uh, walking out to the parking lot one day early in my job there and saying out loud to myself God help me if anybody heard me there are weird people in that church And then in a few years, I moved on and worked on the staff of another church. And I thought, there are weird people in that church, too. It's almost like it's a magnet for weird people. (laughs) And I don't know when I finally got it that, yes, the church is full of weird people. Um, It's flawed. It's full of conflict. It's broken even as it blesses us. It's unable to stop spreading what's inside good and bad it's infectious in its formation of others whether good and bad and usually both and when you pause to take an anamnesis of your church experience of the pictures in your head the experiences you've had you see it don't you you have joy you have pain you know weird people who are god's people So perhaps starting with our own experience might not be the right place to begin our history, that we have to go farther back into the history of the body to grasp who she really is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer tells us that we should look back into the story of the people of God to truly know who we are. And this is from his recommended book, Life Together, very short, very beautiful. He says, consecutive reading of biblical books forces everyone who wants to hear to put himself or herself and allow themselves to be found where God has acted once and for all for the salvation of all men and women. Now listen to this. We become part of what once took place for our salvation. Forgetting and losing ourselves, we too pass through the Red Sea, through the desert, across the Jordan, into the promised land. With Israel, we fall into doubt and unbelief. And through punishment and repentance, we experience God's help and faithfulness. This is not mere reverie, it is holy, godly reality. There, God dealt with us. Here, He still deals with us, our needs, our sins, in judgment and grace. It is not that God is a spectator or a share of our present life, however important that is, but rather that we are the reverent listeners and participants in God's action in the sacred story, the history of Christ on earth, and only insofar as we are there is God here with us today also. That's our history, our body. We, we passed through the Red Sea. We were rescued. We cried out. We sinned. All of this is so helpful for our understanding. It's anything but a cold body on a slab, this church. It's a story we enter into in the liturgy, in the Psalms. When a physical body encounters illness or a pathogen, it develops a response that stays with it, often for a lifetime. It's the reason I'll never have chickenpox again, because my body remembers when I was nine years old, and it can fight it off from now on. And so the Psalms... They inoculate us for lament, grief, repentance, hope, healing. That's our body coming to rescue us. It's a good thing we have history. It's a good thing that we know where our body is to be found, that we come to this table again and again to tell the story of the body. Because this body turns up sick so often, This last week has been one of heartbreak for some in our community because a major artery of the church once again saw an accusation of sexual misconduct by a leader. These have come so often, sometimes so close together, sometimes it's hard to pay attention. But some of those affected are our friends here walking among us. The International House of Prayer in Kansas City, you know people who spent years there, and it's their body that's being affected by accusations, by pain, by victims scared to come forward, by people trying to belittle or undermine, by the question of what the clear story of the body is. And that pain, their pain is our pain. When one part of the body hurts, all parts of the body hurt. So our heart is broken with the people in our community for whom that story is not the news, it is their family. So it's a wound that we bear as well. And shortly after that news came out with accusations about an IHOP preacher and broke in a very public platform, a preacher responded from a very public platform by preaching a sermon about Lot's wife, turning back to look, and encourage the people listening not to turn back, not to look at what's behind, simply to face forward. And whatever that preacher's intentions, many heard it as a call not to discuss, not to process, not to reveal, not to come forward, not to bear the wounds laid bare by a scandal that had broken just so recently, not to dwell on the past. And unfortunately, that message, whether it was well-intentioned or not, served to bring more pain to those already hurting, called as a a call to silence. Let's say this, a Band-Aid does not belong over a raging infection. Wounds that are closed before they are healed will open again. And for the body to tell the truth is an act of healing. Everybody must hear the truth in order to be healed. Every part of Christ's body needs to open ears and eyes to the truth. The truth is where we get the help we need. And much of the church, we feel like running away from scandal and tragedy and difficulty and just pull right inward into Jesus and me as if we could. But there are no one celled Christians, (laughs) no one celled churches. We are connected whether we like it or not. So we should be connected well. It's Christ's body, you see. We're just walking around in it. Somehow he both suffered and mended. He was broken and blessed. When we come to this table, the the epiclesis, the part where we declare, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit. We do it in two directions. On all of us gathered here and on the elements before us. It takes my breath away. I almost wanna step back. Something might strike. Pour out your Holy Spirit, really? But where better to ask for the Holy Spirit than on his body and on his blood? When my kids were little, every night we did bath night together, and every night was a kind of anamnesis of the body. Um, going over their skin knees and elbows and bruises, and oh my gosh, there were so many skin knees, and paying attention to where they hurt. And, um, you know, after a couple of nights, somebody would point out a skin knee to me and say, It's changed, it's different, mommy, it's smaller, it's going away. This bru- Where's that bruise? Where did it go? What happened? It was like a mystery. And because I'm obsessed with both medicine and ministry, I had to tell them. I mean, who tells a two-year-old about white blood cells and platelets and leukocytes and me, it's me. And eventually, <laughs> eventually I would just say, um, God made your body to heal. Look at that. Your body's working. God made your body to heal. God's healing you. And so after a while, they stopped asking. And they just, they pointed to the need, to the bruise, to the scab. And they said, Mommy, look. God is healing may it be so for each of us, for his body, for his church. Amen.